Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, um, thank you that you speak to us through your word by your Holy Spirit. Thank you for these words of Jesus written down for us long ago. Um, we pray that you would help us to hear them this morning, that we would be changed as individuals and as your people together. Amen. Can you think of a time in your life when you, when the, the penny finally dropped about Jesus? Maybe it's a specific date. Maybe you can even remember the time of day when you finally figured out who he was. Maybe it happened over a period of a few weeks, months or years. Or maybe you know that there wasn't a specific time. It feels like there wasn't a specific time. But you know now that you're clear about him. At some point in your life, you figured out who Jesus was. And your life was changed dramatically as a result of that or maybe you're here this morning and you know that you haven't totally figured Jesus out yet. You're still wondering whether it's ever possible to be clear about him. And if you ever did get clarity, you wonder to yourself, what difference would it actually make? But today's reading deals with that vital question of Jesus' identity. Who is he and what did he come to do? It's part one of the kind of hinge point of Matthew's Gospel, part one of a dramatic turning. We're going to see um, part two next week. And it begins with Jesus asking his disciples for some results of some market research. Verse 13, when Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? So not for the first time, Jesus gets away from the crowds uh, to spend some time alone with his disciples. And he wants to hear from them what conclusions that other people have been drawing about him. They replied, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. Well, John the Baptist, he was a recent A-list celebrity, wasn't he? And we saw back in chapter 14 um, how King Herod had had John the Baptist executed. King Herod wondered if Jesus was somehow John the Baptist reincarnated, and it seems as if some of the common people thought the same thing. Elijah, on the other hand, well, he was a historical hero. The very last words of the Old Testament promised that Elijah is going to come again. And uh, some people are wondering, is Jesus this promised returning Elijah? But Jesus has already said that John the Baptist was the promised returning Elijah. So John isn't Elijah. John isn't, sorry, Jesus isn't Elijah. Jesus isn't John the Baptist. But what about option number three? Is Jesus Jeremiah? Well, apparently in English we have a proverb to call someone a Jeremiah. I've never used it, maybe you have. But uh, if you call someone a Jeremiah, basically they are full of doom and gloom. They're pessimistic about the present and they're calamitous about the future. And Jeremiah, rather unfairly, was known as the prophet of doom because he condemned Israel's unfaithfulness and he warned them of God's judgments. And some people, at least, have picked up on Jesus' tendency to do the same thing. Or maybe Jesus was none of the above, option four, just a prophet. Well, at least a prophet was someone very special though. So the, the, the people know that Jesus is a special guy, whether he's one of these options or not. But we still get the sense that they are clutching at straws. Maybe he's this, maybe he's that, maybe he's someone else. But although Jesus wanted to hear what the people think of Jeremiah, 
of, of himself, of him. He's got a much more important question to ask than that. Verse 15. But what about you? He asked. Who do you say I am? And Jesus' question and the conversation that follows takes us to our first lesson today, which is this. Recognising Jesus as Messiah always relies on divine revelation. Recognising Jesus as Messiah always relies on divine revelation. Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. This is an absolutely massive moment in Matthew's Gospel. Because Peter has finally figured out what the reader has been aware of since the beginning. Do you remember how Matthew starts his Gospel? He doesn't start it with Jesus in a manger. doesn't start it with the wise men following a star. He starts it with Jesus' family tree. Let me read some of that to you. Matthew chapter 1 verse 1. This is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah. Verse 16. Mary was the mother of Jesus who is called the Messiah. Verse 17. Thus there were 14 generations in all from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile to Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Messiah. And then verse 18. That famous reading that we have, often have at Christmas. This is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. See, from the very beginning of his book, Matthew wants us to be absolutely clear that Jesus is God's promised Saviour King. And now, at last, one of Jesus' closest disciples has hit the nail on the head. You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And perhaps we feel like slapping Peter on the back and giving him a round of applause. But if we're, all if we're at all inclined to congratulate him on his cleverness, well, what Jesus says next comes as a massive surprise. Verse 17, Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. In other words, recognition relies on revelation. And that is an absolutely extraordinary thing to think about. Just remember what Peter has seen with his own eyes and heard with his own ears. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. If anyone had enough evidence to figure out who Jesus was by their own efforts, if anyone had enough information to reach their own conclusions about Jesus, surely it was Peter. Jesus says, no, you didn't figure it out by yourself. Your friends didn't help you understand. My Father showed you. God did it. God opened the eyes of your heart so that you could understand and know who I am. My Father showed you. So today, this morning, are you convinced that Jesus is the Messiah, God's King? And not just God's King, but God's Son too. Because although those two titles are perhaps interchangeable, the Messiah, the Son of God, maybe it just means kind of Messiah, the King. But at another level, I think that second title shows us that Jesus is much more than a human King. 
He's the almighty, eternal, living Son of God. As we remember at Christmas time, he is Emmanuel, God with us. Have we recognised that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of the living God? Because if we have, let's not, get our, let's not give ourselves a pat on the back. Let's not give ourselves a round of applause. Because Jesus says to you and to me, just like he said to Peter, you didn't figure that out yourself. My Father showed you. Recognising Jesus as Messiah always relies on divine revelation. So don't you think that truth should teach us humility like nothing else in the world? Because as Christians, we claim to understand the most influential person in history. We claim to, to know who he is. We claim to have a relationship with the one true eternal God through his son, Jesus Christ. And that is an amazingly privileged position to be in, but we're not there by our own efforts. We're not there by our own cleverness. We're not there by our own backgrounds. We're not there by how often we turn up at church or home group. We're not there because we did a brilliant coursework, course once at a church or because a friend helped us understand for ourselves. We're there because in Jesus' words, my Father showed you. So let's never look down on our friends who don't understand yet. Instead, let's count our blessings, as Jesus said, blessed are you. And let's ask our Father to do the same for them. Because if, if recognising Jesus as Messiah always relies on divine revelation, then none of us can ever persuade anyone else to understand who he is. No amount of fantastic Christian parenting no amount of the most excellent friendship evangelism can ever make our children or our friends understand who Jesus is. No amount, or no number of superb evangelistic events, no visionary church strategy will ever help our community understand who Jesus is. Of course, all those things are very important. But none of them are what's fundamental. What really counts isn't what we show our friends or our children, or our community. It's what Jesus' Father in heaven does. So let's pray that he would. And if you're here this morning and you know that you're not yet a Christian, you know you're not yet sure who he is, well, let me encourage you to ask him to show you. Ask the God you're not sure you believe in yet if he would show Jesus to you. Recognising Jesus as Messiah always relies on divine revelation. We started with the, the confusion of the crowds, all those different options they came up with. Jesus then focused on the clarity that came to Peter, and now he widens the lens again from Peter to another crowd, to his church. Verse 18. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Well, perhaps this is one of the most disputed verses um, in the Old Testament through his, in New Testament through history, but it's here to teach us a vital lesson about what the Messiah came to do, which is this: the Messiah always builds his church on apostolic foundations. The Messiah always builds his church on apostolic foundations. Uh, we often refer to really famous people by their nicknames, don't we? Uh, here are a few. 
Um, I wonder if you can name them. This is some audience participation. Um, the King of Pop. Elvis. The King of Rock. Oh, so I've got it the wrong way around. The King of Pop is Michael Jackson. The King of Rock is Elvis. The Iron Lady. The People's Princess. Brilliant. And we, we almost got them, didn't we? Um, a good nickname highlights something really important about a person's character or role. It's the same with Simon Peter. Peter isn't his middle name, it's his nickname given to him by Jesus to highlight something vital about him. The Greek word for Peter and the Aramaic word mean rock. So we could perhaps translate verse 18, and I tell you that you are rock man. And on this, on this rock, I will build my church. You are rock man. And on this rock, I will build my church. What exactly does Jesus mean by that? Well, first of all, it's really important we realise he's not talking about buildings, but people. And hopefully that's very obvious to us as we sit in a school assembly hall, not in a literal church building. But what might be less obvious is that Jesus is using an old word, not a new one. Because the word church really means assembly or gathering. It's an Old Testament word, actually, used to describe God's people of Israel, the assembly of God's people. So when Jesus speaks to Peter, saying, you are rock man, and on this rock I will build my church, he is saying something really radical. He's saying, from now on, the people of God are defined by their relationship to me. It's not about the nation-state of Israel anymore. It's about the church of the Messiah. So that's the people Jesus is promising to build on rock man Peter. But what exactly, or how exactly, will he build it? Well, you might know that the Roman Catholic Church bases its doctrine of what they call Petrine succession on this verse. In other words, the true church traces its bishops or can trace its bishops all the way back to Peter. Peter was effectively the first pope, and his authority as pope is passed on down the generations. And wherever there is a pope, there is a true church. Maybe that's what Jesus meant. Or maybe, as Protestants tend to say, Jesus wasn't talking about Peter as such, but about what Peter had just said, his belief that Jesus is the Messiah. So it's Peter's faith that's the rock, not Peter's person or position. Well, it seems to me that the Roman Catholics have the most obvious reading of the text. It's as if we might imagine Jesus pointing at Peter and saying, you are rock man, if it... And on this rock, it's most natural to understand this rock as the rock man, isn't it? Most natural to understand it as referring to Peter's person rather than to Peter's faith. So verse 18, I think, seems to make it clear that Jesus is focusing on Peter the person. But what's gone before, verses 16 and 17, show us that Peter's faith is vital too. Haven't we seen the same thing as we've begun to study Acts in our home groups. Who preached the first evangelistic sermon and saw 3,000 people converted on one day? Peter. Who stood up to the hostile authorities and declared that there is no other name under heaven by which we must be saved? Peter. You see, Peter believed that Jesus was the Messiah, 
the son of the living God. And so Jesus made, his, Jesus made him his rock man for the early church. And even though Peter is dead, Jesus still builds his church on what Peter believed. So the Messiah always builds his church on apostolic foundations. The Roman Catholics read too much into this. They read into the idea of succession, but the verse says nothing about succession. It says Peter and his faith. So Peter back then, at the beginning, his faith going forwards. That is why I've called it an apostolic foundations. And that's why it's good when we meet together to say the creed, which is what we did earlier on. It's why commissioned pastors and senior elders have to re-sign a statement of faith every year. Because if we move away from the foundations laid down by the apostles, either as individuals or as a church, then it's impossible, isn't it, for Jesus to build us into his church because we've moved away from the foundation. But if we stick to those foundations, we can be hugely confident about the future. What does verse 18 say? I will build my church, and on this rock, uh, I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. But in a week when it seems that many around us have trivialised death and darkness, it's helpful to remember that death is an enemy. It's bent on swallowing us up and destroying us. It's pictured here as Hades, the place of the dead. And the gates, I think, symbolise death's imprisoning grasp on all people. Those gates hold them in. But Jesus' church will never be swallowed up by death. How could it be? if it belongs to the Messiah, the son of the living God. So the Messiah will build his death-defying church on apostolic foundations, but those foundations aren't merely rock-like, they're also locked tight. Verse 19, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Well, the change of metaphor from rocks to keys, I think, comes as a bit of a surprise, but it develops this important idea of apostolic foundations. Jesus isn't saying that Peter is the bouncer at the pearly gates. He doesn't stand there and decide who's allowed in and who's not allowed in. Instead, Jesus is giving Peter authority to be God's steward on earth in that early church. He's charged with governing and caring for his people, the church. And that, that language of binding and loosing or tying and untying speaks of that role as well. It's unfamiliar language to us, but it would have been very familiar to the people of Jesus' time. Uh, the rabbis tended to use it about to describe what was allowed and what wasn't allowed um, amongst their religious communities. And so if we were to look on into chapter 18, Jesus repeats that language and he uses it to talk about church discipline. But here, in chapter 16, it's more about Peter's specific role in that early church, where on a number of occasions he either bolted the door or he unlocked the way to heaven. A clear example, which we're going to see as we study the book of Acts, is when Peter encounters Cornelius. Remember him, the Gentile centurion. His whole household believed the gospel and when Peter preaches to them. The other apostles in Jerusalem can't get their heads around that. And they're wondering, has God really chosen the Gentiles to be part of Jesus' church? 
And then Peter famously answers them in Acts 15. I wonder if we could just turn to that. Um, Acts 15 and verse 8. I'm going to read a few verses from there. It's page 1110. So Peter's speaking to the apostles and elders, and he says this in Acts 15, verse 8. God, who knows the heart, showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them just as he did to us. He did not discriminate between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith. Now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of Gentiles a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear? No, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved, just as they are. In other words, Peter is loosing, opening up the kingdom of heaven, approving those people um, as God's people in the early church. And I think we saw the opposite, didn't we, this week, if you were at home group this week, with Ananias and Sapphira. They looked the parts on the outside, but Peter called their bluff. They were hypocrites. They were not true believers. And they were literally stopped dead in their tracks. On both occasions, Peter didn't make a decision which heaven had to follow. Instead, Peter simply enacted the decision that had already been made in heaven. And I think that's just, if you have a look at the footnotes back in Matthew 16, that's made clear by that. So let me read to you again. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will have been bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth will have been loosed in heaven. See, God has already made the decision. Peter is simply enacting it as his steward, opening up the church to those genuine believers in Acts 10 and 11, and closing the church to those who didn't have real faith. And it makes sense, doesn't it, that that Peter is simply enacting the decisions that God has already made, because it's not Peter's church. It's Jesus' church. And the Messiah always builds his church on apostolic foundations. Conscious that's quite a bit of difficult detective work, just those couple of verses there, uh, as we've sought to get to the bottom of them. But I hope that you sense it's been worth it. And also, I hope you can see particularly that those, that lesson is both hugely encouraging and seriously humbling. It's humbling because it reminds us that Jesus doesn't need you and me to build his church. It doesn't depend on the personality or the giftedness of a, of a preacher. He doesn't expect us to follow certain worship styles to be successful. He doesn't need us to enact a magic formula of church programs and events. And I'm sure that we can be tempted to go for all of those things. Because at heart, I suspect, most of us would quite like to be our own little rock man or our own little rock woman. Jesus doesn't build his church on us. He built it back then on his rock man Peter and he still builds it today on his apostolic foundations. That lesson humbles us, but also I think it gives us courage and confidence. And I've been encouraged by it as I thought about it this week. Can we be confident that God will grow us as a church in the years ahead? Can we expect to see one another grow in faith and commitment to Jesus? Can we expect to see our friends and neighbours put their trust in Jesus and be saved? 
Well, Jesus' words to Peter mean the answer to those questions, yes. We all need to play our part, a bit like Peter had to play his part at the beginning. But ultimately, it's not down to you and me to build Jesus' church. Jesus said, I will build my church. And of course, that is not a promise specifically for us here at Christchurch Hillsfield. Jesus' church is bigger than that. We said that in the creed, didn't we? I believe in the one holy Catholic church, the church all across the world. But every local church is an outpost of Jesus' universal church. And Jesus will build that promise to, to build that universal church in his local churches as long as we build on those apostolic foundations. So whether you've been here a long time, whether you're like me, I'm quite new to this little local church, let's be confident that we're part of something that can never be stopped. We can be confident that Jesus is building his church. And if we are confident, then, then let's get stuck in. Let's serve as fellow builders with Jesus. Let's help each other to keep on building on those apostolic foundations. And let's keep asking Jesus to keep that promise to build his church. Well, Jesus has said some pretty momentous things. And then what he says next is a big surprise. Verse 20. Then he ordered his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. What? Jesus, or Peter has just identified Jesus as the Messiah, the Son of the living God. We've just learned that recognising Jesus always, de always depends on divine revelation. Jesus has just given his apostle the most amazing promise that he will always build his church on apostolic foundations and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. And then Jesus says, don't tell anyone what I've just told you. Why is that? Well, that's because we're only at part one of the turning point in Matthew's Gospel. Jesus is the Messiah, but he's not the Messiah the apostles imagine him to be. He's the Messiah who is going to have to die to make his people the people of God. And that is what Peter and you and I are going to need to learn next week. Should we have a moment of quiet and we'll pray. My Father showed you. And Lord, thank you so much that you have shown us who Jesus is in our hearts. And if we're not yet sure about that this morning, Father, we pray that you would show us and we pray that you would help us as a, as a local church to build upon those apostolic foundations laid down for us in the teachings of the New Testament to be humble people, but to be confident that we are part of something brilliant, amazing, wonderful that you are building here and across the world. Amen.